0: Right. So last week, and now continuing this week, driven by our circumstances with this this coronavirus, um, this is a situation that that at least in any history I can remember is unprecedented. Now maybe earlier before um, advanced medical science, you know, they they had polio and they had the Spanish flu, and in these different things. But in my lifetime, I can't ever remember a whole country basically being shut down by a virus. Yet here we are. I mean, literally, if three months ago somebody would have said to you, I'll bet you $100 to your dollar, that within three months, all the universities would be closed down, all the schools would be shut down, that people were told that they can't leave their house unless they're going for an emergency or for groceries or something that, un, you know, until just recently, that toilet paper would be unavailable to you, hand sanitizer would be non-existent. We just said, I'll take that bet every day of the week. Yet here we are right now, literally our government has allocated over $2 trillion to try to deal with this thing, which that's somewhat a scam because some of the pork that's in that two trillion dollars is absolutely insane, but the point is, I could have never ever imagined that we would find ourselves in the place that we are right now, and and to me personally, I see it as a kairos moment, a, a such a time as this moment, for us to choose how we're going to respond. I, I think as as the world gets more and more um, comfortable with we're not all going to die in a second. We're starting to have less panic and less whatnot. But this is a moment where the church can really, truly shine like a city on a hill, where, where we can act like the world acts when we're confronted, when our faith is tested, or we can look to the scriptures and see what God's promises are, and we can live our lives in response to our faith in what God tells us, not in a faith of fear Uh, based upon what the world or the media or the circumstances would tell us. So there's two areas of trusting God that I wanted to speak to. First was provision, and then the second today will be protection. So last week we talked about God's promises to his people to provide for them. Um, The best example that I can share from the New Testament was from Matthew chapter 6, where jesus says you cannot serve two masters and the specific he uses is god and wealth but the same would be true you could take out wealth you could put in fear you cannot serve two masters both god and fear and you could continue to read down through matthew chapter six and all the examples that he's given and it would work just as well as god and wealth he, he says why do you worry about what you're going to eat or what you're going to wear or whether or not you'll have protection a roof over your head Don't you know that your Father in heaven knows that you need all these things? He provides them generously. You seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Sorry, I just saw Jack there. Hey, Jack. Um, All these things will be added to you. So do we live in fear because you went to Walmart the last 10 times and there was no toilet paper on the shelf or no chicken or no... Whatever that you might need to survive or do you trust that God's word is superior to what the world might present to us and say I don't know how he's going to do it but God has made a promise to me that if I'm concerned about his business seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness that he has promised that all that I need all the provision that I need is going to be given to me and that was the challenge that we spoke to last week, that don't be like the world. When you get to the grocery store and you actually find that you you showed up right after they restocked the toilet paper, don't take as much as you can carry. Take what you would normally buy and leave the rest. Don't hoard it because we don't have the same concerns that the world does because we have promises from God. That was last week. This week, I want to speak to... God's promises of protection. And if you remember, I guess it would have been two Sundays ago, I think, Steve White felt compelled to read to us from Psalm 91. And and Psalm 91 was all over every place because it's a very um, hope-giving course of Scripture for people that have a relationship with God. Now, many, many, many people think they have a relationship with God, that don't in a saving sense and they might hold those promises but but they can't the the scripture says that um i didn't have this in the sermon so i have to do this from memory all of god's promises are yes in christ jesus and our amen is to his glory flowing through us that's a paraphrase But the people who can say all of God's promises are yes are the people that are found in Christ Jesus. You can only be found in Christ Jesus if you've responded positively to the gospel, in which case you're born again, Holy Spirit comes to dwell inside of you, you become the temple of God, and you are sealed by God with his spirit for the ultimate day of redemption. Your sins are forgiven, and you have the promises of God because you are in Christ Jesus. The amen comes to us seeing his glory as it flows through us. So the song that says all of God's promises are yes and amen is a poor presentation of that scripture because they're only yes in Christ Jesus and they're affirmed by our amen, I agree, when we see God's glory present in and through us. Okay, so then the focus I want to use today is Psalm 91. That's the place we'll launch from, but then I want to give you some context that's not specifically in Psalm 91, ask you whether or not you believe Psalm 91, and then deal with maybe why we don't actually believe Psalm 91. And again, you might hear from me what you would interpret as judgment or condemnation excuse me um, if you don't exercise faith in the way that would ignore to some extent coronavirus that's not at all my point each one of us has to walk out our salvation our faith according to our own consciences and we all have different circumstances but my message today is that we can trust God His promises are legitimate. He speaks them. We have to decide whether we believe them or not. Okay, so let's read through Psalm 91, and then um, we'll go from there. Psalm 91. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust, for it is he who delivers you from the snare of the trapper and from the deadly pestilence. I, I think coronavirus or COVID or you know whatever its proper name is would be a poster child example of pestilence. For it is he who delivers you from the snare of the trapper and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions and under his wings you may seek refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and bulwark. You will not be afraid of the terror by night or of the arrow that flies by day or the pestilence that stalks in darkness or the destruction that lays in waste at noon. A thousand may fall at your side and ten thousand at your right hand, but it shall not approach you. You will only look on with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked." For you have made the Lord my refuge, even the Most High, your dwelling place. No evil will befall you, nor will any plague come near your tent. For he will give his angels charge concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will bear you up in their hands that you do not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus quoted that scripture. You will tread upon the lion and the cobra, the lion and the serpent, You will trample down because he has loved me. Therefore, I will deliver him. I will set him securely on high because he has known my name. He will call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With a long life, I will satisfy him and let him see my salvation. So there's a ton of stuff in Psalm 91. I'll try and... um, give you a chance to flip in your Bibles. The, the next scripture I'm going to go to is in Mark, Mark chapter 16, and starting in verse 17, if you want to start to flip. So there's a, there's a ton of things that God is promising in Psalm 91. The focus for today, from the perspective of his, his protection, is from pestilence, sickness, and plague, which is the thing that's challenging us right now. Okay, so then, Mark sixteen, seventeen, and 18. These signs will accompany those who have believed. In my name they will cast out demons, they will speak with new tongues, they will pick up serpents, and if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick, and they will recover. Hang on just a second. My screen needs adjusted a little bit okay so Psalm 91 primarily Mark chapter 16 to give us some perspective from these there are promises from the New Testament scripture in Mark 16 there's a condition those who have believed so for those who have believed we have promises they will pick up serpents and not be harmed if they drink deadly poison, it will not hurt them. There's other promises in there, but they're not as relevant to today. Now, they will pick up deadly. They will pick up serpents and not be harmed. And not be harmed is my addition. But there's even a biblical example of that, where the apostle Paul is um, on an island. His his ship is wrecked, and he's he's uh, kindling a fire. And as the fire starts to kindle a viper, the Bible says, a snake, a serpent, jumps out of the uh, fire and it bites him. And then the people that are there, the native people that are there, think that he must be cursed because God has judged him that this poisonous viper would release its venom into his body. But nothing happened to Paul. And then they, (laughs) they were so surprised that he didn't swell up and die that they thought he was a god, a literal god, because that viper bite didn't kill him. But see, Paul knew that he had a promise and that he couldn't die because God had given him a promise. From uh, Psalm 91, be delivered from the deadly pestilence is a promise. Will not be afraid of the deadly pestilence that stalks in the night is a promise. And no plague will come near your tent is a promise. And I was going to save this till the end, but I'll give it to you at the beginning. I'm going to talk in a second about if and then, conditional things. And I think the condition for the promises in Psalm 91 is at the very beginning where the psalmist says, my God in whom I trust. So for the person whose God is the God of the Bible, from the person who... Um, trusts, has faith, believes what that God says, then they can take from these uh, scriptures the promises that uh, a deadly pestilence, a COVID-19, a coronavirus, a whatever can't hurt them, that they don't have to have any fear of those kinds of things, that no plague will come near their tent. There was a guy um, earlier in the 1900s, I, I believe, he was in the 19, maybe the late 1800s, but I think the 1900s, named John G. Lake. And John G. Lake had tremendous faith. And he would have healing meetings and see just miracle after miracle after miracle. And, And they tested him. And literally, they put live bubonic plague in his hand. And the bubonic plague turned black and died. Now, God is no respecter of persons. John G. Lake... Isn't necessarily any different than any other believer, except I believe John G. Lake had an insanely wonderful amount of um, faith. Okay, so there's there's two courses of scripture: Psalm 91, Matthew 16. There are promises that are um, specific to what we're talking about today, but they both are conditional. Matthew 16 to them who believe, and Psalm 91 my God in whom I trust. So let's look at some more if-then kind of stuff. Conditional promises. Uh, James chapter 4, verses 6 through 8. So I'll give you a second if you want to flip to James chapter 4. Okay. James chapter 4, verses 6 through 8. uh, Or the Apostle James speaking. But he, God, he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. So there's conditions and there's promises in here. Um, conditions or promise God opposes the proud but he provides grace to the humble so we can get grace from God or we can be opposed by God grace is what empowers everything that God has to offer to this world and to and through his people so we can act in pride or we can act in humility the the best definition that I have for biblical pride is this: putting uh, here is God's opinion in His Word. It's what He says. Then we take our opinion on that matter and either surrender it to God, that's humility, or we hold our own opinion above what God says. Remember in. Um, 2 Corinthians 10 taking um, speculations imaginations lofty things that exalt themselves above the true knowledge of God every thought captive to the obedience of Christ that's what kind of this is talking about is that we have a word from God and he says that no plague will come near our tent that's the promise I surrender to you, Lord, and I believe that that's true, and I'm going to live my life according to that truth. Or, doctor says, the world says, the news media says, that I have to do all these things, otherwise the plague is going to get in my tent. Humility, pride. That may not be the best example, given our current situation, but that's that's what he's talking about. So, the condition is pride or humility. The promise is grace, God's grace. Next one, the devil will flee from you. So there's a promise that when the devil is attacking us, that there's a mechanism by which he will flee, but it's conditional. The conditions are submit to God and resist the devil. There is no promise that the devil will flee from you if you choose to invite him into your presence. If you choose to agree with his lies, then the devil has, has um, no requirement to flee from you. The promise of his fleeing is conditional upon how we deal with it. And then the final one in James chapter 4 here is, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. So, God, where are you? I I, I don't know your presence. I I can't sense you. Your voice is silent to me. Well, you could have a problem with pride and humility, but here you have a problem with sin. Because he goes on to say, cleanse your hands you sinners and purify your hearts you double minded so in the context of drawing near to God the first step according to the scriptures and you see this all through the Bible is on our part we would always make the first step towards God and then we know because he said so that he will come near to us my sense is if we'll step an inch he'll step a mile but the first step is ours it's conditional the second step set of conditions are that if we're going to walk in the darkness if we're going to walk in disobedience if we're going to walk um, not in holiness then we can step and step and step and step but we're never going to draw near to God because what he says if you want me to draw near to you is you cleanse your hands you sinners repent from the sin in your life and stop being double minded purify your hearts you double minded stop agreeing with the world Agreeing with God, agreeing with the world, agreeing with God. That he really does have an expectation that when he tells us something, that we're going to decide to believe it. Here's a second set of scriptures that um, I was going to use this morning to help to give us this sense. If you uh, turn, turn to 2 Corinthians, golly, 2 Corinthians Chapter 6, starting in verse 14. Again, we're going to see commands, and we're going to see conditions, and we're going to see promises. 2 Corinthians chapter 6 starting in verse 14. We're going to read through chapter 7 and verse 1. Okay. Do not be bound together with unbelievers for what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness, or what harmony has Christ with Belial, which is another name for Satan, or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever, or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean. And I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. So he starts off with a command don't be bound together with unbelievers you have to live in the world but you don't connect yourself to the world don't be bound together with unbelievers you have these promises God will dwell and walk among us he will be our God and we will be his people he will be a father to us we will be his sons and daughters those are pretty good promises The conditions to those promises do not be bound together with unbelievers, come out from among their midst and be separate. And and they, in this context, is the unbelievers or the world. In um, James and 1 John, it speaks very strongly to a believer's relationship with the world. In James, it says that Uh, if we should choose to be friends with the world to participate in the things that are pleasing to the world but unpleasing to God that we make ourselves to be enemies of God that we place ourselves in a position of enmity towards God it's not a small thing when a believer chooses to fellowship with the, the evil or the sinful or the unholy ways of the world and 1 John says basically the same thing don't be friends with the world. The world is passing away. There's no eternal value in the world. It's all going to be burned up and go away. Be friends with God who can offer you eternal life. Perfecting. The third condition is perfecting holiness in the fear of God. So they really speak to actually having a, 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 an eternal relationship with God or not and maybe indications of whether you do or you don't, but very strong statements. God says that he wants to walk among us. Would you like to walk with God? First John says, if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. The one another is us and God, and the blood of his son Jesus cleanses us from all unrighteousness. But if we choose not to walk in the light with God, then we are not walking with God. We're choosing to be proud and go our own way versus to be humble and go his way. And he's not with us in those contexts. Now, if you've had a situation where you've partnered with the world or fellowship with the world or in some way denied holiness, doesn't mean that you've lost your salvation. It could. It could be an indication that that's true. But it's not necessarily that indication because First John also says that if we say we have no sin we lie and make God to be a liar. But if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just or faithful and righteous, depending on your translation, to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. It's really the position of your heart. Do you want to walk with God or do you want to walk with the world? Um, That's what I tried to explain to Dini and Lon, who I would guess probably don't have what we would think of as a very um, terribly sinful lifestyle. But the very practice of serving an idol god or a million idol gods in the Hindu religion would be pretty distasteful to God. It would be an indication that he wouldn't walk with you. Now let's go to the Old Testament Testament and look in Deuteronomy. I'm going to read from chapter 7, but if this moves you at all, I would really, really, really encourage you to read deuteronomy chapter 7 and maybe deuteronomy chapters 28 through 30 or you know all of the book of deuteronomy in deuteronomy you'll see the 10 commandments and you'll see over and over and over again that relationship with god is based in covenant and covenant is conditional okay deuteronomy chapter 7 i'm going to read verse 9 and then i'm going to jump to 12 through 15 to show these conditions Know therefore that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God, who keeps his covenant and his loving kindness to a thousandth generation with those who love him and keep his commandments. Then it shall come about, because you listen to these judgments, these commandments, these precepts of your God, that you listen to these judgments and keep and do them, that the Lord your God will keep with you his covenant and his loving kindness which he swore to your forefathers. So let me just stop for a minute. He he's laying out this conditional relationship. Because you do what God tells you to do from the commandments of the covenant, he's going to keep the promises that he made to you in the covenant. Verse 13. He will love you and bless you and multiply you. He will also bless the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, your grain and your new wine and your oil, the increase of your herd and the young of your flock in the land which he swore to your forefathers to give you. You shall be blessed above all peoples. There will be no male or female barren among you or among your cattle. The Lord will remove, look at this, the Lord will remove from you all sickness. And he will not put on any of you any excuse me on you any of the harmful diseases of Egypt which you have known but he will lay them on all who hate you now that's pretty amazing if you can if you would read in the other places in Deuteronomy um it's not quite this concise but it blows out the promises and it also blows out the curses if you don't keep this covenant so then the question we got to ask ourselves is god different in his perception of covenant relationship in the old testament than he is in the new testament the word tells us i can hear larry saying it in his mind right now that he's the same god yesterday today and tomorrow he is the god that does not change so personally my position is that when god establishes covenant It's the same way. Now, not every covenant is the same, but he handles covenant the same way in every case. There we see instances of if and then conditional promises based upon faith, obedience, those things. And then let me just read you from Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 6. Matter of fact, go there in your Bibles. I'll wait a minute. Because. It makes a very powerful statement. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 6. Read that one in a minute to yourselves, and then I'll read it out loud. Hebrews 8, verse 6. The he in there is Jesus, if you read it in broader context. It's comparing, all through Hebrews, it's comparing the covenant that we have in Christ by grace through faith with God versus the covenant that the Israel people had with God through the, um, through Moses. Hebrews 8.6 But now he, Jesus, has obtained a more excellent ministry by which as he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enact, which has been enacted on better promises. So, I don't know if you can make doctrine out of this, but this is what I believe. I believe that we have a better covenant than the Jews had with God through Moses. I know that's true because it tells me right here that this covenant is a better covenant. But it says that this covenant of ours is better and has been enacted on better promises. So would there be any case where that covenant had better promises than this covenant? I don't think so. You could read on in Hebrews chapter 8 and you would get some examples of what those better promises are. But in my mind, what God offered to Israel through Moses cannot be better than what God offers us through Jesus. And you've seen some of these promises. The Lord will remove from you all sickness. Now we can see in the New Testament where God uses sickness as a judgment, not a judgment unto damnation, but a judgment unto repentance. Some of you are weak, some of you are sick, and some of you sleep, have died because you didn't examine yourselves and judge yourselves properly and you took of the body and the blood of the Lord in an unworthy manner. Therefore, there are these consequences, but these consequences are discipline unto repentance, not uh, judgment unto death. When I read Psalm 91 and I have to decide whether I believe it or not, I choose to believe it, but I choose to believe that no plague will come into my tent or deadly pestilence will touch me because of the condition that I trust God. So it seems to me that faith is the, um, the catalyzer, the, the activating component of all this stuff. Abraham believed God, had faith, trusted God, believed what he said. He believed with hope against hope. There was no hope, yet he believed God. And God credited Abraham with righteousness. The same righteousness that we have in Christ Jesus, the very righteousness of God based upon faith in and through Christ Jesus. So you can't be saved. I can't be saved. There is no eternal life without faith. But the covenant that we have offers us more than just the eternal forgiveness of our sins, which is, it's not a just, I mean, it's like, it's the whole game because without it, none of the rest matters, but it's not the only thing that we get. So, When we look at covenant and we look at promises and we look at God's provision and God's protection, we see that they're pretty much, I would say always, but I just don't have the confidence to say always, but I'm I'm pretty sure always conditional. And one of the conditions, maybe the primary condition for all of them is faith. In our culture, really, not even in the culture, in our church culture, I don't know if this is true in Africa or other parts of the world, but it's very true within the Western church, the American church, it's almost like faith has become a four-letter word. And and the way that it's used in that manner is somebody got sick and they didn't get healed. And their response is, are you telling me that I don't have enough faith? Like, who are you to tell me I don't have enough faith? Like, faith doesn't matter uh it has to be something else and and it's almost scary to talk to people about faith because if they're weak in the faith or they've been taught from who knows what or they have teachers that tickle their itching ears because they want them to always feel good about themselves faith doesn't get to be a factor in any of this i say baloney faith is a huge factor in all this um scripturally you probably know this But practically, you have to decide whether you believe it or not. So, let me just run you through some scriptures. The first one is in Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9. I'm going to start at verse 27. Man, there there was like so many of these that I could have included, but I'm just going to read you three or four, which you might think is so many. Matthew chapter 9, verse 27 through 30. As Jesus went out from there, two blind men followed him, crying out, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind blind men came up to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, It shall be done to you according to your faith. And their eyes were opened. So their eyes opened... Because they believed that Jesus was able to do that. It was done to them according to their faith. If they had no faith, nothing would have been done, if I understand what that scripture is saying. The next one is Matthew chapter 8, starting in verse 5. So back just a few chapters, Matthew 8, starting in verse 5. Okay, Matthew 8, 5 through 13. And when Jesus entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, a Roman, important Roman soldier. A centurion came to him, imploring him and saying, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, fearfully tormented. Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion said, Lord, I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. But just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go. And he goes. And to another, come. And he comes. And to my slave, do this. And he does it. Now when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who were following, Truly I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. So just stop for a second here. Here's this centurion. He's not a Jew. There aren't any Christians yet because there's been no resurrection. He's a Roman maybe has some sense for the roman gods but he understands authority and he knows that whatever is tormenting his servant whatever that sickness is i think it said he's paralyzed whatever that is is under the authority of jesus and this centurion understands authority so he says listen if i tell my slave to do this he does it if i tell this one to go he goes if i tell this one to come he comes because they're under my authority and whatever is tormenting my servant is under your authority. And you don't even have to come. You're not. My house isn't even worthy for you to come inside of it. But if you speak the word, that thing is going to go because it has to because of your authority. Verse 11. I say to you that many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out. Now, the sons of the kingdom, I think, is the Jews in this context, will be cast out into outer darkness. In, the place, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus said to the centurion, Go, it shall be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed that very moment. Flip just one chapter to the right. Matthew chapter 9, verse 20. Oh, I see Abby. Hi, Abby. Matthew chapter 9, starting in verse 20. And a woman who had been suffering from a hemorrhage for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his cloak. For she was saying to herself, If I only touch his garment, I will get well. But Jesus, turning and seeing her, said, Daughter, take courage. Your faith has made you well at once the woman was the woman was made well. Now, I don't have this one in my notes, but I should have. Jesus was approached by a guy named Jairus. And Jarius's daughter was about to die. She was so sick. And he had heard of Jesus, so he went to be to get Jesus, to bring him to his house, so that Jesus could save his daughter from death. On the way to Jarius's house, they encountered this woman who literally had spent everything she had with doctors to try to get healed of this issue of blood that she had. And she knew that if she could just touch the hem of his garment, she would be healed. And Jesus didn't pray for her, Jesus didn't anything, but in in another account you'll see Jesus felt power go forth from him because her faith touching the hem of his garment drew healing power from heaven right through Jesus' body and healed her and her faith made her well. Now, Jesus continues on his way to Jairus' house to go and uh, deal with the sickness that is killing Jairus' daughter. And as they're on their way, one of Jairus' people comes and finds him and says, hey, listen, don't bother Jesus anymore because your daughter has died. Jesus immediately looks at Jairus. He says, don't be afraid, only believe don't be afraid, only believe. You cannot serve, this is this is not that. You cannot serve two masters. You can't serve God and fear. Jesus knew that if Jairus was to accept that his daughter was dead, if he was to be afraid that it was lost, that there would be no faith to heal his daughter. So Jesus immediately says to Jairus, do not be afraid, only believe. And And if you know the rest of the story, they got there, everybody was... Um, weeping and crying because the little girl had died and Jesus asked him why are you crying she's not dead she only sleeps and then they ridiculed Jesus so Jesus put all of them out all of that lack of faith he put out and he took with him to the girl who had died only Peter, James, John and the girl's father maybe both of her parents he laid out his hand on her and he said Talitha cum, little girl arise and that little girl rose up from the dead and he did next what any person would do he said she's hungry hungry, get her some lunch do not be afraid only believe your faith has made made you well it will be done for you as you have believed faith matters it's a condition okay and then just in in the opposite kind of in the negative turn to Mark chapter 6 next book to the right chapter 6 right at the beginning of chapter 6 verse 4 And I'm going to read you this same instance. I should have had you go to Matthew first since we were there, but Mark 6, chapter, chapter 6, verse 4, because it sheds a light on it from two different angles. Okay, Jesus said to them, now Jesus is in, in Nazareth. He's in his hometown area, and he's not finding people that are believing in him because they know him as Jesus. They don't know him as Messiah. Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his own relatives and in his own household. And he could do no miracle there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he wondered at their unbelief. So Jesus here, it says he could do no miracles. He literally was stopped from doing miracles. And it says he wondered at their unbelief. But it doesn't say it was because of their unbelief. That's why I want to give you also the Matthew uh, version of this same story. That's chapter 13, starting in verse 57. Matthew 13, starting in 57 and 58. And they took offense at him, him is Jesus, But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many miracles there because of their unbelief. So Matthew and Mark are relating the same circumstance. And this is why it's so important to look at the parallel scriptures. If you only read Matthew, you would know that Jesus was limited to do no miracle there. He literally could not. You wouldn't know why specifically, but you might believe that it was unbelief because he wondered at their unbelief. But when you look at the Matthew version, you see, and he did not do. So you could say, well, maybe he chose not to because of their unbelief. But we know that's not the case because in Mark's version, it says he could not do. So, so you look the two together and you find out that he could not do. And then it says, because of their unbelief, Versus he wondered at their unbelief. So you put those together and the conclusion you draw is that he couldn't do these miracles. He could only heal a few people because of their unbelief. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It's weird. I mean, if we were at church, I could say amen and, and you would all say amen or some of you would say amen. Hopefully somebody would say Amen. Maybe just give me like some nods. Is this making sense to you so far? Okay, good. Thank you. Good nodding. Margie, good waving. Virginia, you came closer to the screen. I'll take that as an amen. Oh, there you go. A thumbs up. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 7. In the context of a whole bunch of scriptures that aren't speaking about healing and aren't speaking about God's protection or provision necessarily, but I believe this to be a principle of Scripture to actually see the promises of God. 2 Corinthians 5.7 For we walk by faith, not by sight. We walk, we live our lives, we conduct ourselves in a manner of faith. Faith in what? Faith in what God said. But what God says and what I see don't match up. You have a decision to make. Which are you going to believe? Are you going to believe what the report of your eyes? Or are you going to believe the report that God's word promises? When um, there's a book, I was going to tell you the author and I was going to tell you the title, but I can't remember. The book of um, Like a Mighty Wind, Wind, whose author is Meltari. Meltari. And, And there's this huge revival that happens in Indonesia. And um, this guy Meltari is caught up in it. Meltari is the best friend of Roland Baker of Heidi and Roland Baker. He, I believe he was the best man at Heidi and Roland's wedding, and um, he he saw just amazing things. Just that book is so faith building, uh, like a mighty wind. That it would be you would do well to read it. We probably have a copy if you want to borrow one. The the particular example I would state is that Jesus' first recorded miracle was he created wine from water at a wedding reception. So in this church in Indonesia, they don't have grapes. So they don't have grape juice, they don't have wine. I think it would be legitimate to take communion with whatever you have, maybe coconut milk if you're in Indonesia. But they said that our God created wine for Jesus. If he did it for Jesus, he would do it for them. And they would take what they call a vessel, a, a jar or a decanter of some sort, they would fill it with water, they would cover it, and they would pray over it. And it would turn to wine. And when they took communion, they took communion with wine. Why? When they... When, well, let me back up a minute. When they would... When Meltari was questioning this, he's like, You know, how can this be? And they all took a sip of the wine after they'd prayed. And each one of them said, Oh my, I think that's the best wine ever. Oh yeah, I think so too. And Meltari took a sip and he didn't say anything, but he's like, It's water. It's not wine, it's water. Then they took it to the church. They offered some to the pastor. They all took a drink. And Meltari's like, It's wine. So he says to them, You be honest. I agree, it's wine now, but when we were at the other place and we tasted it, it wasn't wine, it was water. And their response was, Brother Mel, we trust the word of God above the report of our taste buds. That's faith. Now, this might be just a little bit of me. Uh, Staying in Matthew chapter 15... Wait a minute, let me back up a minute. So we walk by faith, not by sight. My question is, do we really? I mean, do we really? When our faith is tested like with a COVID or a, you know, are we really saying, God, what do you say about this? And I'm going to walk according to faith in what you say? Or are we going to be like the world and trust what we see? Versus what God says, we all got to ask ourselves that question. And in some cases, we may walk by faith. And in other, you know some situations, not just a plague or a pestilence, and others might walk by faith. And in other situations, you know the one who did well with the plague doesn't do well in this situation. So you know there's a whole lot of promises that God has, and there's a whole lot in His Word that demand our faith and maybe we do well in some areas and we we have a little lack in other areas but that's a question that we should confront ourselves with are we prepared to walk by faith and not by sight okay turn to matthew 15 start in verse 7 we're going to end in verse 9 I promise you we'll still have a shorter service than if we were in the building. I could see the text messages. Okay, five bucks on that one. Matthew fifteen, seven through nine. You hypocrites, this is Jesus speaking. You hypocrites. Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me. Teaching his doctrines, the precepts of men. There's a there's a real challenge to conform to the church, even when the church doesn't conform to the word of God. Now this is specific in Matthew 15. The, he's speaking to the um, the Pharisees and. The lawyers i forget anyway he's speaking to the religious leaders and he's quoting scripture they honor me with their lips they honor god with their lips but their hearts are far away from him in vain of no value there's no value in their worship because they teach as doctrines the precepts of men so personally my thought is this i tell you god heals You pray for one another and somebody doesn't get healed. But you don't know, so you do it again. And you don't know, so you do it again. Or I don't know, I do it again. And nobody gets healed. And nobody gets healed. And nobody gets healed. Now I have a problem. I'm the one teaching you the Bible, what's true. But it's not demonstrating itself to be true. What do I do? I can't tell you, well, God's a liar, right? You'd find a different pastor. So I have to have a reason why what I said doesn't, by sight, turn out to be true. So I, I, I come up with some thoughts, well-meaning thoughts, trying to understand, trying to explain, that disagree with the scriptures. Like, well, that was only for the apostles, and that was only in the first century because the church was being established at that time. You're hypothetically saying this stuff. I'm hypothetically saying this stuff. Thank you, Trees. Right? I come up with a doctrine that explains why... We see failure according to the Word of God and our practice. And I teach it to you, and you teach it to your children, and your children, a couple of them are pastors and preachers, and that's what they believe because you taught it to them, and, and they teach their congregations. And over century after century after century, the church doesn't believe. Nobody's speaking in tongues, nobody's getting healed, the dead aren't being raised. And, and so finally, God says, Enough is enough and he brings a revival like he did in Wales like he did in Australia like he did in Azusa Street and people are prophesying and they're, they're being baptized in the Holy Spirit they're speaking in other tongues and all this miraculous stuff is happening why? because it's always been true and then the religious leaders they come and they inspect it and they say that's not God that's the devil and all of a sudden The devil is responsible for healing people, and God is responsible for making them sick. Why? Because we adhere to doctrines of men, because we listen to what we're told, but we don't examine the scriptures and hold ourselves accountable to the scriptures, and instead of making excuses for why not, cry out to God to make us worthy of the why. Give me the Amen nod again. Okay. All right, good. Not with the smirk, Steve, just a nod. <laughs> now let me just throw a little um a little something else into this equation. I believe that faith is a necessary component to the promises of God. I believe that obedience is a necessary component. Could God do something separately out excuse me, sovereignly outside of, you know, much faith or whatever? I guess he's God, he can do whatever he wants but this is the way he's teaching us. I believe that all of those promises, while conditional, are available to us if we're willing to meet the conditions, one of which, maybe the most important of which, is faith. But, there's also a place for wisdom. If you go to Proverbs chapter 4, and verse 6, In some translations, the her that you're going to see is not her, but wisdom, the word wisdom. In mine, it's translated her, but it means wisdom. So in Psalm 91, God through the psalmist says, if you trust me, no deadly pestilence will touch you, blah, blah, blah. The same God speaks through the writer of Proverbs 4, and he says, Do not forsake her, she is wisdom. Do not forsake her, and she will guard you. Love her, and she will watch over you. Flip again real fast back to Matthew chapter 4 and verse 5. I'll give you some context. Jesus has... Gone to the River Jordan. He's been baptized by the uh, John the Baptist. He's come out of the water. His father has spoken over him audibly from heaven, and the Holy Spirit has descended upon him and rested on him. The Holy Spirit then guides him into the wilderness, where for forty days he eats no food, being tested by the devil. He's about to come out of the wilderness and begin his ministry. And this, that's the point where we're at right here where Satan himself is testing Jesus. This is one of the tests. Then the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you and on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to Satan, Jesus said to him, on the other hand it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So there's a place for godly wisdom and there's a place for understanding that because God said no plague shall enter your tent, no pestilence will come over you, that you don't go find you hundred sick people and ask them to spit in a cup and to prove that you can't be touched that you do something so stupid as to test god that you should walk in wisdom but you should know that god has made a promise and by faith you can receive that promise and act on it but it doesn't negate wisdom jesus The the devil tried to say to him, if you are the son of God, he tried to get him to doubt his identity. Does anybody out there ever had God or the devil try to tell you who you are? He might use words like loser, ineffective, any of those kinds of things. He tried to use that same tactic on Jesus. But Jesus knew who he was. Jesus knew the word of God. Jesus knew that if he were to stumble, if he were to slip and fall off the pinnacle of the temple, then angels would have caught him and he would not have stubbed his foot. But he also knew that you do not test God, that his promises are for the circumstances, not for his testing. Another amen? Amen. Okay. So then, it begs the question, why do Christians get sick? Why do Christians, I don't know any. Matter of fact, I don't, Yes, I might know one person who has COVID, but it's not been confirmed yet. But I would have to guess that church-going people there are some of the, however many, you know have been tested positive, would call themselves a Christian. And let's just say they are a Christian. After all that that you just taught us, Pat, how come people get sick? Here's, here's what I think is happening. Turn to uh, excuse me, first Peter chapter five. Okay, so 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8 and 9. This is what I think is going on. Be of sober spirit, beyond the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experience of suffering, experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. Uh, Jesus said, The thief comes only but to kill, steal, and destroy. But I, Jesus, came that you might have life and have it more abundant. So here's what I think is happening. I think that the devil and his minions are going about the earth and they're looking to whom they might devour. And they do it in the only way they can with the Christian through deception. Now, if you've been at church on the street any length of time you know that I believe that the fiery darts or the flaming arrows of Ephesians 6 are thoughts and for whatever divine reason God has chosen to allow the enemy to have access to our thoughts to plant thoughts in our minds I think what's happening is the enemy is planting a, a, a thought that's a symptom and, and let me explain to you my, I have some experiences here Um, We were at a conference and God was giving word of knowledge, words of knowledge on the stage. And people were claiming these words of knowledge. One of the words of knowledge was that God was delivering people from, wasn't heartburn, wasn't the word, but another word, acid reflux reflux disease. Well, I, I don't know if I had that or not, but I know I had heartburn. That would kill an elephant. I mean, it was so terrible. I would have to take pills every night. Otherwise, the heartburn would keep me awake. If I ate anything that was um, sketchy in the evening, I would die for it during the night when I'm sleeping. I stood up and I said, I claim it. And the meeting ended about, I don't know, 10 or 10.30, and we were on a cruise ship. So we went straight to the all-night pizza joint (laughs) and bought like triple pepperoni, pizza, grease bomb, heartburn igniting, nasty. And I ate a lot, and I had no heartburn. I could eat anything, and I had no heartburn. I didn't take any pills. I didn't have any heartburn at night. About a year and a half later, after having had no heartburn, I felt like the symptoms of heartburn coming on me. And I said, no way, you lying devil. I've been delivered from heartburn. You, I don't have heartburn. I don't know how you're doing this, but I don't have heartburn. Chase it off. I, I wouldn't have heartburn. I could feel it coming. A month later, I'd feel it coming, chase it off. Feel it coming, chase it off. Feel it coming, chase it off. Second testimony, everybody in our house was sick, like, like sweats and uh, shakes and chills. And it was a Sunday and I had to go out of town on an early flight Monday morning. And there is nothing worse than living in a hotel when you're sick. And I'm like, Lord, I, I, I can't get sick. I got to go out of town tomorrow. I can't not go out of town tomorrow. And the Lord said to me, I taught you how to deal with this. And he did. He taught me how to deal with bad thoughts. But I didn't make that connection to symptoms that were equivalent to bad thoughts. So I did the same process I did to chase off a a bad thought. You know it. It's Psalm 23. Psalm 23 is not important. It's submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So I'd recite Psalm 23 to myself until the symptoms went away, and they did. And then they'd come back, and I'd chase them off again. They'd come back, and I'd chase them off again. When I got out of bed in the morning, I was 100% fine. Everybody else is still sick. That sickness was not sickness for me. It was a lie of the devil. It was a prowler looking to see if he could devour me with his lies. Yeah, Psalm 23 was, the, was a, the tool that I used, reciting it, setting my mind to God. And then the last example I'll give you is just recently, where I've declared that I will not get... I, I believe that no deadly pestilence can touch me. By faith, I believe that that's true, and I am not going to get sick. And if I pray over somebody that has it, they're going to get healed, but I'm not going to get sick. And for the three weeks that I've been making that declaration i've been having symptoms and i chase them off i say no way satan you're a liar i don't know how you're getting this into my head how you're making my head hurt how you're making my sinuses feel but you're a liar i choose not to accept your lies i believe what god says and they go away the most recent one was today's sunday friday morning and i was praying that very prayer to god i was thanking him and praising him that no deadly pestilence can touch me and in the very center of my forehead i started to ache and it's not a headache ache it's the ache that i would recognize that i would feel as i'm getting sick and i'm actually praying and the devil's trying to give it to me and i said god You even know, you can see right now, his hand is on me or his voice is in my ear and he's trying to get me to believe that you're not trustworthy and that I can't trust your word. But I'm declaring to you right now, Father, that this is a lie from the devil and I am not sick and I have no disorder in my head and that you have protected me from sickness and disease. And in five minutes it was gone. I believe... That the enemy, God allows him to test our faith. And when our faith fails, then we've come into agreement with his lie, and we have to deal with the consequences of that. Turn now to Romans chapter 6 and verse 16. There's a little party going on up in uh, Liam's room right now. I don't know if you can hear the music. Romans 6 and 16, here we go. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? So it's not a direct application but when the, the, the enemy whispers in my ear a lie or a symptom, however he does it, I have a choice. Will I present myself to God according to his word? Or will I present myself to the symptom or to the lie? And the one that I obey is the one who's going to have dominion over me. So let me just summarize. I've got... Two more scriptures I want to read to you, but I've, I've read everything that matters to the point that I'm trying to make. Last week we talked about, do we trust God? Do we trust his promises? He promises us provision. We don't have to concern ourselves that we're going to wither away and die because we don't have what we need. We're going to freeze to death because we don't have a house. We're going to starve to death because we don't have food. We're going to whatever to death because we don't have clothes. He's promised us. And we have to choose by faith whether we believe him or not. This week, we talk about Psalm 91, Mark chapter 16, where God makes these phenomenal promises. He says, no deadly pestilence will touch you. You can drink poison and it won't harm you. A poisonous viper can bite you and it'll have no effect on you. And we have to decide what we believe. Are they true or aren't they true? Well, we've seen them actually be true. There's a guy who was the base director in Mozambique of the base we were staying on. Don Cantel, was that his name, Treason? Mm-hmm. Don Cantel. He took us to another base that he was overseeing, a newer base, when we were there after the school had ended. And he told us a story about um, hundreds of children lining up because they brought food for the kids. And I don't remember exactly, but I think they had bananas, cookies, and Cokes. And like these thousands of kids, not thousands, that's a little hyperbole, hundreds of kids lined up. And when the, when the little African kids line up, so nobody gets in front of them, they're like this, one right next to the other, right on top of each other. So he told the people that were passing out, like one person would reach and get the banana, another one get the cookie. He'd like, break the cookies in half, break the bananas in half. We don't have enough. And they kept giving and kept giving. And then it's like faith started to hit him. And he starts giving two bananas, two cookies, two Cokes. And they fed all the children. Does it sound familiar? He fed all the children cookies, Cokes, and bananas as much as they could eat. And I don't remember if he had any left over or not. But the word of God, he chose to believe it. Just like Jesus in the 4,000, just like Jesus in the 5,000, God multiplied the food because he's able and he wants to prove himself to be who he says he is. We have to decide. It's hard. It's hard. During the course of this last three weeks, one time I did, I took some ibuprofen because I had a headache. I don't know if maybe that was just a headache. I don't know. But I did take some ibuprofen. I, I really did not be successful, chasing off that headache, just, just to be honest with you. So I, I finished last week the same way I'll finish this week. Philippians chapter 1, to Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. Philippians 1, 27. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come, the Apostle Paul, to the Philippians, maybe I come Maybe I can't. So that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. The gospel provides us the promises. Faith empowers the promises. Grace empowers the promises, I guess. Faith is the gate that opens to the promises Paul is telling the Romans or the Philippians and God is telling us to live our lives in a manner worthy of the gospel worthy of Jesus who sacrificed himself that we might have the promises that are available in the gospel worthy of the God who calls us worthy of the calling by which we are called those are the those are the conduct yourself messages that are in the new testament worthy of the gospel of christ and that we in order to walk in a manner worthy of that gospel must strive together for the faith of the gospel for that which the gospel opens up to us by faith to see it happen and and i tell you that i believe that the difference is city on a hill or look like the world israel failed God made all those covenant promises to them because they were to be the city on the hill that would draw all men unto God and they would see that their false gods were false gods. Lons, Hindu gods, are false gods. They cannot provide to him what Jesus promises is his if he'll repent and if he'll believe. Then he can claim the promises. The promises will happen and he will be the light of the world, a city on a hill. Finally, Luke 18, the second half of verse 8. Jesus speaking. Jesus speaking. However, when the Son of Man, Jesus is speaking of himself, however, when the Son of Man comes, like when he returns, will he find faith on the earth? That was his question. Will Jesus find a people that actually believe what he says. And he knows they believe it because it's how they conduct their lives in a manner worthy of that gospel. See, if we go back to Psalm 91 and we read those promises, all the promises, we're only talking today about the promises of uh, against pestilence and against um, uh, diseases and things, I believe that the key is at the beginning. My God, in whom I trust. And if my trust is in His Word and His ability and His desire, then I believe that we will actually see those things. And people will see us as we experience those things. And the church, the body of Jesus Christ, will be as Jesus was. And people will be drawn to Him because they will see. That the life that He provides, the abundant life that He provides, is immeasurably better than the ways that the world tries to pacify itself in wickedness and evil. That they, you know, they call what's good evil and what's evil good. Can I get the Amen not again? Okay. Amen. Okay. Father God. Right now, right in this moment, faith is very strong. Faith is, uh, is abundant with, uh, within us and about us. Lord, I pray that as we confront the busyness of our lives, day next, day next, day next, whatever comes up, that we won't test you, that we believe you, but we won't test you in foolish ways, but that when we're presented with that decision of walking by faith, or by sight trusting in what we see or trusting in you letting our master be fear wealth something that we need because we don't trust you lord that you will stir us and you'll remind us of the faith that we're experiencing right now and that we will choose to be brave and courageous just like you told um joshua as he led israel into the promised land be of good courage, be brave. I'm a trustworthy God, I'm a faithful God. Remind us, Lord, and have us put down fear, put down insecurity and anxiety, and walk in a manner that's worthy of the gospel, exalting you, not just with the words of our lips, Lord, but that we would be a people that exalt you in the behavior of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.